Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. What you're about to hear is the first part of a multi-part series, which is an ideological history of libertarianism. So, this one starts at the beginning and looks at the origins of the ideology and some of its earliest thinkers, and also some of the thinkers that they were reacting against. This is going to be a little bit different to the usual podcasts that we do, and it's the result of audience selection. Like I mentioned last time, I took to Twitter, and I I like that sentence, I like the way Twitter is something one can take to. But anyway, I took to Twitter, and I did some polls, and I asked, would people be interested by me doing, like, an editorial episode? And people said yes. And I said, okay, what on? And people from a variety of different topics picked political ideologies. I asked which one? Libertarianism, okay. Um, And then eventually I asked, okay, do you want me to argue for or against libertarianism? Or do you want me to try and do a history? And people again went for history. So this is quite different to a lot of the shows that we've done. It's going to be me doing a history. And this is very much a Toby history, by which I mean I am influenced by the political theory of Michael Frieden in particular, that views ideologies as competitions over the control of political language, and we're going to get into exactly what that means in the episode. So this is an ideological history of libertarianism that might be quite different from how it's usually presented. It's going to be one that's very concerned with context and very concerned with the language that thinkers use to express themselves, and also very concerned with the impact of how they express themselves. So, I should start with a confession. This was initially meant to just be a quick one-off episode, It did not turn into that. I wrote out something that in my head seemed like worth about an hour, and then once I actually got to recording it, it's going to be at least two parts, maybe three. So the way I'm going to do this is I don't think I want to just release all three back-to-back, week-to-week-to-week. I'm going to do this this week, go back to interviews, and then maybe intersperse it, do a few interviews, one of these, a few interviews, one of these, something like that. And if, like, nobody likes it and nobody listens to it, then I guess this was just an experiment that didn't work. So in this first one, I'm looking at the origins of libertarianism. I'm also just sort of setting out my shop. I'm setting out a general method, an approach to how we look at political ideologies. And I'm talking about what political ideologies are. What do they do, you know? So this is sort of setting up the story, right? This is almost in many ways the prelude. And then in the next parts, what I want to do is I want to use... Um, one of the great features of podcasts is that we can get audio clips in. So I've already got my audio clips. I just didn't want to put out a two and a half hour episode. But in the next ones, I want to look at some later libertarian thinkers, get audio clips and like do analysis of them. So by analogy, if you read a, you know, book, 
you might find that it quoted particular paragraphs from someone in order to do analysis of its content. So I want to do the same with libertarianism here. So I've got some great clips from um, Hayek and other people going forward that I want to talk about. But to tell that story, I found it necessary to tell the story of so-called classical liberalism in the 1800s. And that's what you're going to hear in this episode. So let's get straight to it. This is a bit different to what we've done before. We will be going back to interviews next week if you don't like this. But, I I don't know, I encourage you to listen with an open mind. And please, please, please do send me feedback if you think I'm just dangerously wrong. Please do um, get back to me on this. So, this is Libertarianism and Ideological History, Part 1. by reading you a quote without giving any context at all for the quote. This is it. It seems needed to remind everybody what liberalism was in the past, that they may perceive its unlikeness to the so-called liberalism of the present. If the present drift of things continues, it may very well be, by the by, that conservatives will be the defenders of liberties, which liberals, in their pursuit of what they think popular welfare is, trample underfoot. End quote. So, what do you make of that quote? In other words, you've heard these sentiments before, though, right? Whatever side of the political, ideological spectrum you're on, you've heard this idea before, that liberalism has lost its way, it's become contaminated with all sorts of different collectivist, social welfare, social justice notions, and that what we really need to do is get back to good old-fashioned liberalism, right? The liberalism of presumably the 1800s and uh, free markets and individual rights and uh, real liberty, right? You've heard this before. Who have you heard it from? Where did this quote come from? Well, this could be from some sort of entrepreneur, right? A Silicon Valley type, uh, maybe like an Elon Musk. You could hear him saying something like that, right? Maybe one of the intellectual dark web. This could be be Dave Rubin, right? Dave Rubin says stuff like this all the time. Maybe if you added uh, a few hundred words and a confused syntax, it could become Jordan Peterson, maybe, on a good day. It's a little well put for that, but maybe Sam Harris, maybe a politician, maybe one of these sort of very centrist Democrats. If you ignore the fact that the um, quote seems a little surprised that conservatives may be the real defenders of liberals, liberties, sorry, you could sort of hear a Tea Party member saying something like this. Although perhaps I'm getting ahead of myself, perhaps it isn't modern. This could be someone like 
Robert Nozack, the sort of libertarian political philosopher writing in the 70s, or part of that general ideological milieu. It could be a bit older, right? This could be someone from, like, the Chicago Business School, Milton Friedman, or someone like that, a sort of free market economist pining for the return to classical liberalism from what they saw as a sort of contemporary 60s and 70s liberalism that had got way out of hand. So where is the quote from, and have you caught the trick I'm playing yet? I'll, I'll confess to one slight deception, which is I changed a single word in the quote. In the original quote, instead of conservatives, it read Tories, which gives away the geographical location. Tories is what British people call our Conservative Party. It also betrays probably that it's a little bit older than we're thinking. So, where does this quote, pining for a return to classical liberalism, come from? And when I say classical liberalism, just pick a date. What date are we thinking? Mid-1800s, right? Thereabouts. That's sort of what we're going for here. So, as you've guessed, the quote I've given you is from the 1800s. This is Herbert Spencer, a British libertarian, although he wouldn't have had that label to identify himself with at the time. He would have called himself a liberal, maybe even a classical liberal, writing in the 1860s. Supposedly, the heyday of the liberalism that contemporary libertarians and some conservatives want to take us back to. So what's going on here? One thing that we'll see throughout this ideological history that I'm going to present is that there are a set of recurring themes in the discourse around this ideology. The desire to lay claim to a timeline, the desire to represent themselves as the legitimate heirs of liberalism, is going to be a central, almost an existential concern for generation after generation of libertarians. From the very first of them, all the way through to the present day, as is the other theme of that quote. The idea of establishing control over language, of promoting a correct usage of terms like liberty, freedom, individuality. We're going to start this story then with Spencer, and we're necessarily going to have to start it in the world that he found himself living in. The England, the UK, whatever you want to call it, of the 1800s. A world whose political thought is existentially concerned with industrialization, urbanization, the problems of empire. And in this world, as we shall see, the predominant form of liberal thought was one that he was strongly reacting against. Contemporary libertarians seemed to imagine that liberal thought of the age was classical liberal, and classical liberal was libertarian. But as we've just heard from Spencer, and this isn't a one-off quote, this is something he said again and again and again, as did many of the people that he was influenced by, they clearly saw themselves as very alienated from the liberalism of the day. So in starting our story, I'm going to describe an emerging liberal view of the world 
that people like Spencer found intolerable. And it's in their rejection of that view that we find the origins of libertarianism. So, who is Herbert Spencer reacting against? Well, I'm not going to have time to do a full survey of all liberal thought in the 1860s. However, it does seem to me like we might take one liberal author, who we still study today, as representative. And if we dig in there, we might find some of the stuff that's so offensive to Spencer, and that libertarianism became a distinct ideology by defining itself in opposition to. So, long-term listeners will be not surprised to find me introducing John Stuart Mill at this point. Again, someone who many contemporary libertarians reference back to as one of the classical liberals that they purport to admire. But libertarianism as an ideology was founded in the rejection of many of the central moral and ideological claims that Mill is making. So let's start with the point that seemed to so concern Herbert Spencer and seems to concern also many contemporary libertarians, which is that they're not using words correctly. This is an insight that I am wholly indebted to Michael Frieden for, that a central element of what political ideologies are is they are competitions over control of language. So, in other words, libertarianism is asserting that's not what liberty is, this is what liberty is. And liberals are doing the same thing. They're trying to control the meaning of words. They're also trying to control which words are the most important. So let's dig in at this level. What are the ultimate moral goals that Mill is appealing to? And I say goals in the plural. Mill is a pluralist about the nature of the good. I argued that point in my conversation with Tamla Summers, if you want to hear more on that. But he says in On Liberty, and I'm quoting here, I regard utility as the ultimate appeal in all ethical questions, but it must be utility in the largest sense, grounded in the permanent interests of man as a progressive being. Well, what, what, what does he mean by this? That, that can seem a bit vague and abstract. Go to the beginning of chapter 3 of On Liberty, where he says that the problem is not getting people to agree on a course of action to promote a universally desired end, but on the end of itself. And he says, if people felt that, quote, the free development of individuality, end quote, were an end in itself then that might get us out of a lot of the problems that we have. And that kind of cashes out his claim about man as a progressive being. So we have three big concepts here that he's just alluded to and linked together and mutually defined together. Freedom, development, and individuality. So Mill is a very, very individualistic philosopher right? This is what he is known for, the liberty principle, right? You can only be constrained to an action to prevent harm to others. That's sort of what he's known for. My right to swing my fist 
ends with your nose to find a contemporary formulation of that. But it's a liber- it's an individualism that's tied to a very different understanding of what freedom is and a very different understanding of, of what human nature is. So, again, what, what what's Mill's foundational view of human nature? Again, quoting from On Liberty, he tells us that human nature is not a machine to do exactly the tasks set to do for it, but rather, quote, it is a tree that must be allowed to grow and develop itself on all sides in accordance with the tendency of the inward forces that make it a living thing, end quote. So again, tied to this idea of development, by which Mill means that people are improvable. This isn't a a sort of abstract view of we just need to take the gloves off and leave people alone, nor is it a relativistic view. It's not a view that nobody really knows what the right answer is, therefore we should just leave people alone. It is a view that there absolutely are right answers, and there absolutely are better and worse sorts of people, that people can get better, both morally, both hedonistically, and politically, that societies can get better. But, Mill would want to say, the best way for them to get better is for them to do it on their own. It really matters, he tells us, and again, I'm still with it on liberty here, not only what men do, but the manner of men they are that do it. End quote. The idea being that it matters, it, it helps, it makes people better to be self-choosing. The act of deciding different courses of actions, having to think about it, having co- to commit to it, is part of what it is to develop character. So, freedom is located very close to and is mutually defined by ideas of individuality and ideas of development and progress. And that that optimism about the possibility of progress exists both on the individual level and on the collective level. Just as individuals can grow and become better people and lead more valuable lives, both for themselves and others, so societies can grow and develop. So we have these three central elements, individuality, freedom, and development or progress. And now I'm going to add a couple more. The next is limited and accountable power. And I want to just stress that the justification for this idea doesn't rest in any sort of innate idea about what governments can and can't do. This is an idea of a restriction of power that applies to all forms of power. And I'm going to return to that theme. The other that might seem a little counterintuitive is the idea of society and the innate socializability of mankind. So in On Liberty, he's not concerned with establishing the dominance of the individual over society. He's concerned with finding the balance between them, the correct distribution between them, establishing the correct dividing line, what's often got called in later political thought the public-private divide. But to believe in that, you also have to believe in a private. So in representative government, 
Mill stresses that one of the most important tasks of government is, quote, the general welfare of the community. Not any particular group, but the general welfare. And this finds its analogue in later liberal thought in the idea of the common good. He also stresses, and this is in utilitarianism, that the common good cannot be pursued if, quote, it interferes unduly with human freedom and human individuality, end quote. So this is really interesting. So what we have here is a central cluster of ideas. Frieden calls it a core, and by analogy, you might think of the nucleus of an atom, where you have like a very tightly interconnected, this is my analogy, so don't go too far with it, but you have a very tightly connected bunch of protons and neutrons that are kind of held together. So you have this core of ideas in Mill's thought, and as I'm arguing, Mill is quite representative, at least in this respect, of many of the other liberals of his age. You have freedom, you have development or progress, you have individuality, but you also have society and sociability, and the idea of limited and accountable power. And these ideas are mutually defining. Freedom, in a sense, is the development of individuality, constrained and nourished by society in a framework of limited and accountable power, right? Like, you can define any of the concepts in it by reference to the others, but they're also mutually limiting. So, in other words, the limits on how far you can go to pursue general welfare or support of society those goals are constrained by the ideas of individuality and development, but also the ideas of individuality and development are constrained by the needs of society. They're balanced out. Now, this to libertarians, as we're going to see, is a really, 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 really counterintuitive way of thinking. The idea that you, you have a sort of range of things and they balance each other out is to libertarians a sort of intellectual confusion, right? If you really value individuality, why are you allowing concerns of welfare or society or progress or limited and accountable power to get in the way of that. Don't you really believe in individual freedom? Again, hearkening back to this idea of, of, of claiming control of words. The other thing that libertarians of this age are going to be very, very, very upset with liberals like Mill for is what policy positions they support as a result of this set of values, right? So this isn't just academic. You have to appreciate this in context. And the context is, Mill is going to say some stuff that's going to sound quite contemporarily liberal, right? So what is the main thing libertarians are concerned by when they talk about freedom is economic freedom, right? A sort of laissez-faire, free markets, untrampled capitalism, all of that good stuff. Now, again, that's not one idea, that's a cluster of ideas, there's many different ideas of what free markets are, but that is a central concern of libertarianism. What does Mill say about this? Well, from On Liberty, quote, trade is a social act 
whoever undertakes to sell any description of goods to the public does what affects the interests of other persons, and of society in general, and thus his conduct, in principle, comes within the justification of society. Skipping ahead a little. The principle of individual liberty is not involved in the doctrine of free trade, so neither is it in the most important questions arising of the limits of that doctrine. For example, what amount of public control is admissible for the prevention of fraud by adulteration, as far as sanitary precautions or the arrangements to protect working people employed in dangerous conditions? How should this be enforced by employers? So, in other words, Mill is saying his liberty principle has nothing whatsoever to do with government interference in the economy. That's totally permissible if it serves the greater good. Why? Because that involves others. And this is particularly obvious in the modern age. If you think about some of the big banks or Facebook or Google, they have power over you whether or not you buy their product, right? Now, this is impermissible to libertarians at the time. Remember the context in which we're writing, right? These people are writing in the age of the Industrial Revolution, in the age of urbanization in which, because of factories and machinery and mass production, huge numbers of the lower classes are coming in from the countryside and into the cities. And this is both going to provide some remarkable opportunities, but it's also a sense of great fear among the ruling classes. What are all of these masses, poor masses, going to do once you have them in one place, very close to the great sources of wealth and the people who control the society. Well, in the words of Walter Whale, one of the political commentators of the time, they will pick up the cobblestones and throw them. So these are the sorts of fears and ideas that are motivating these writers. So then let's look at what Spencer is saying in response to this. Firstly, at a conceptual level, right? I've been using the analogy of an atom where we have, right, this core or nucleus of central ideas. For Mill, it's freedom, it's individuality, it's development and progress. It's also limited and accountable power. And the idea of the common good, social welfare, social, the socializability of mankind. Spencer is going to strip all of that down. He's going to do so quite um, self-consciously. So he is going to define freedom quite succinctly as someone who is, quote, left secure in his person and his properties. So we're going to jettison a huge number of the concepts of the liberal core that we find in Mill. We're going to jettison development, welfare, the common good, limited and accountable power, and we're going to add one in its place, which is property. Now, Mill, as most liberals of the time, believed in property rights, for sure. He wasn't like a revolutionary socialist or something like that, but they were what you might call a secondary moral good. They were there insofar as they supported his primary moral goods, but no more than that. 
To Spencer, these are ineliminatable. He wants to say, as were modern libertarians, if you violate someone's property rights, you are doing something that is fundamentally morally wrong. Now, again, keep in mind the context. If we had this um, metaphor of the core the, the the nucleus of an atom being the central moral claims of an ideology. Whizzing around that, you have a bunch of um, electrons, which in our case would be the particular policies and principles that that ideology is recommending. Now, if you make alterations, I'm not a chemist, by the way, so don't take this analogy too seriously, but if you make alterations to the formula of the electrons around the edge or you make alterations to the core of the ideology in the middle, they're going to change each other. Likewise, if you make changes to the core moral claims of an ideology, you're going to make changes to what particular policies that ideology can support, and vice versa, right? So if, like Mill, you're going to support... Um, regulation of workplaces for worker safety. If, like Mill, you're going to support the state taxing individuals in order to provide for services like education, and if, like Mill, you're going to want to have a particular endpoint, not endpoint is maybe the wrong way to say it, but a particular goal for where society should go, you're going to have to have a different set of core moral intuitions than just freedom, individuality, and property. Likewise, if your reaction to the problems of the age, to the great urbanization, the great industrialization, the incredible inequality that's going to come with it, if your reaction to that is any demands for or on behalf of this new working class poor, are just illegitimate, we are not considering them, we are afraid of them, we need to keep them down, then you're necessarily going to develop this much tighter and more restrictive set of core concepts, which is what they do. And again, all of Spencer's work, you can see a couple of things going on here. He is saying, one, I am the correct representative of this classical liberalism, by which I guess he would mean someone like Locke. And two, you're getting the meaning of words wrong. Freedom doesn't mean what you think it means. Freedom doesn't mean development or progress. It certainly doesn't mean the common good or welfare or anything like that. Freedom means individuality and property rights. Again, to quote, left secure in his person and possessions. So that's what Spencer's saying here, right? Now, he's also going to argue not just for the meaning of that one word, but the salience of different words. So again, using this metaphor of the atom, he's going to be going saying, these other bits that you've put in the core, in the nucleus, they don't belong here right? So a big concern of libertarianism at the time, and this is going to carry forward into successive generations of libertarianism, and you really need to understand what it's reacting against to get it, is the devaluation of other core liberal concepts. So he's going to specifically attack 
the idea of the developmental idea of human nature. And he's also going to specifically attack the idea of assuming altruism in other people. He's going to say this is, quote, socialist, which for him is uh, is an insult. This is all um, the quotes from Spencer, all coming from man versus the state, by the way, which is, I think, in 169. So there's this attack that you can't assume altruism of people. It certainly should not be the purpose of government to bring altruism out of people. You also have a strict limitation of the state, whereas Mill's idea of progress and development envisaged a constrained but active role for the state. If you read um, on representative government, Mill wants a limited state, but he also wants a healthy, functioning, representative democracy. He wants a state that can pursue big projects and act in the common good. Whereas Spencer says the state should be concerned with only, and I quote here, protecting its subjects against aggression, external or internal. End quote. And just to make it really clear that democracy is not something he's concerned with, he goes on to say he wants the state to be limited to, quote, the comparatively simple duties of protector of existing rights rather than policy making. End quote. Right? So all of those other bits that make Mill distinctively liberal at the time, these are very, very much things that Spencer is concerned to say no. Now, I'm not saying, by the way, that Spencer's specifically going after Mill. He's going after a type of liberalism of which Mill is an exemplar. So just to get that clear, I'm taking these figures as representative of their particular traditions. Now, what's interesting about these two, though, is that I've argued that competition over the control of language is central to understanding ideological history, right? What's interesting about both of them is that they're both self-aware that that's what they're doing. So Spencer says, quote, how often misused words generate misleading thoughts, end quote. So the idea being then that, you know, you're going to get bad policies, which in this uh, atom analogy is the various electrons whizzing around the core, if you're using words wrong. In other words, you're getting your nucleus, your core of central moral concepts wrong. Mill said one of those mistakes most often committed and the greatest source of practical errors in human affairs is assuming that the same word always stands for the same aggregation of ideas. Well, isn't that really interesting? In other words, Mill's, Mill is saying in almost like a proto-Wittgensteinian kind of way, that word meanings change and that words are socially constructed. And he might say back to the libertarian, I'm putting words in his mouth here, you say you have the correct meaning of this word, but what does that mean? Correct according to you? Correct according to common usage? What are you getting at here? Now, interestingly, both of them 
linked the idea of confusion about word meaning to confusion about policy. And both of them, in context, I don't think they were referencing each other, but they were talking about the same word. Property. The Mill quote is from um, his work on socialism, which he had a somewhat sympathetic, somewhat sceptical relationship with, as many liberals of the age did. Spencer's, again, from Man versus the State. So, that's a very, very central element of what political ideologies are. And they aim to get those ideas out into the world. So, in the 1880s, Spencer is going to be key, a key part of a group called the Liberty and Property Defense League. So, you know, what do you think they did, right? Uh, Michael Frieden, who I've been using a lot, a lot in his book, Ideologies and Political Theory, describes this as, quote, a loose grouping of libertarians who propagated a relatively simple creed, lacking Spencer's sophistication. It consisted of members of some groups that had lost out in the radical economic and political changes undergone in late Victorian Britain, such as landowners, major employers, and the petty aristocracy, end quote. Now, how modern does that sound? Am I alone for thinking that? Now, they wouldn't quite call it the Liberty and Property Defence League today, but the Liberty League? There's a bunch of organisations like this, right? Turning Point USA? This sort of quasi-libertarian group, got people like Candace Owens and so on in it, go around on college campuses talking about like the classical liberalism, individual rights, free speech and all that. And it's sponsored and funded by the Koch brothers. So again, and by the way, people are going to say, oh, well, this is hardly a, a, a neutral and even-handed history of libertarianism. Well, I'm, I'm not trying to be, and I don't think that there is anything inherently illegitimate about looking at the relationship of ideologies and philosophies to the prevailing political and economic power structures of the time. Indeed, I would argue, if you don't look at what sections of society, what concerns are people drawing from, you're not really going to understand what's going on in the formation of the ideological age. And that's what this is, by the way. This is the formation of the great ideological traditions at this point, late 1800s. By which I don't mean that there weren't political belief systems beforehand. I mean the great traditions of conservatism, liberalism, and socialism, drawing on many elements and many ideas that, you know, go back to the early modern period or maybe even classical times. But drawing on them really become some of the central ideas that we still have with us today. Now, of course, they've changed a lot. But a lot of the central structures were formed in this age. And I want to make explicit one of the big dividing lines between 
those three great traditions in terms of making sense of this claim about who is the real liberalism. You know, other people whining about social justice with whom I have some sympathy, they're not real liberals, right? Libertarians would say. Whereas people on my side would say libertarians are often just conservatives. So who's getting it right? Well, I'm not necessarily even going to give you the answer to that, but I am going to talk about some ways we can think of the differences between those three great traditions and where and how and why libertarianism might fit into that. So, like I said, the late 1800s is a time obsessed with the idea of progress and social change, and they have to be, because the rate of technological change has just taken a... a a, light, a jump into the future. There's no pretending anymore that fundamentally social progress is stable or even cyclical. Everything has just sped up and it's disorientating. And with that comes, like I mentioned, the challenges of urbanization, of all of the poor suddenly being in the same place, and the challenges, of course, of what do we do about empire. So, these are the issues that every thinker of the age is talking about, even when they're not talking about them. Now, I'm not saying you can reduce all of their work to that, but these are issues that are always in the back of their mind. And as a result, you have a generation of thinkers that are obsessed with the idea of progress, absolutely obsessed with it. I mean, Remember, you've got the age of people like Marx and Hegel who are telling us, in apparent sincerity, that history is going to end. Time will continue, but history is going to end. And what emerges from this set of concerns is three very different ways of conceptualising how societies progress and how it's possible for them to progress. Now, these may often exist at the level of the subconscious, even for quite sophisticated thinkers, but nonetheless they're detectable when we look at how they express themselves through language. So, for liberals, as we've seen, we have this sort of open-ended idea of progress. There might not be a fixed destination, but society continually evolves and unfolds itself. In a crude form, you might think of like a line going up on a graph, you know, like a GDP line or a life expectancy line, just slowly ticking up and up and up and up. And then if you sort of apply that to like three dimensions, the idea that sort of change can take you anywhere. We don't know what's coming, but we know that the present is radically different from the past, and it's reasonable to assume that the future might be radically different from the present. This is a very John Stuart Mill way of putting that, by the way. On the other side, you have conservatives. Now, one thing that Frieden argues, and I think he's correct, that is distinctive about conservatives is the idea of an extra-human origin of the social order. Let me say that again. An extra-human origin of the social order. So, in other words, there are parameters, frameworks, structures that order what society can and can't be that are fundamentally beyond our control. What might these be? Well, back in the day, God 
would be a pretty good example. This is literally an extra-human origin of the social order, right? That there are God's laws, and we can only deviate from them to our detriment. It might also be the class structure, that, that, that there is a natural aristocracy, and a divine right of kings, and all of that, and um, woe betide anyone who, who, who should question it. Now, in the modern age, we're not there yet. This hasn't happened, by the way, in the 1800s, and it won't happen until maybe even the 1950s or 60s. A lot of economic principles will start to come in and take that void. These are extra-human constraints in our behaviour. Societies might change, sure, but if you ever get away from the free market, then, you know, you'll just be on your way to Venezuela, right? How often have you heard that particular line of argumentation? Now, diametrically opposed to that, you have socialist or radical or revolutionary theories of change that see the contemporary social structure as so innately degraded, so innately corrupted, that any positive progress is just going to have to scrap it root and branch and start again. And that that sort of change is both possible and desirable. And here's a trick I've learned from my studies of ideology, and I pass it on to you for free. You can often tell where someone is foundationally coming from politically, even when they're not talking about politics, by just listening very carefully to how they use language and what conception of society is implied by how they use language. So for a liberal, they will see positive progress as charting new ground. That's sort of latent in a lot of the Obama rhetoric, right? Socialists will see the current structure as something innately corrupt that just needs to be done away with. Think of something like Occupy Wall Street. Whereas conservatives will insist to conservatives, positive social change always lies in a reversion, a going back to an underlying norm or process. Because remember to a conservative, even when they're not self-aware of this fact, social change is always constrained by factors that are beyond our control. So, is what is desirable to someone a step in the dark or a reversion to the known? And you can tell a lot about someone and about their politics by what the answer to that question is. At its crudest, you know, make America great again, is a reversion. But even at their most radical, even at their most libertarian, conservatives tend to be trying to get back to something. Now, that's something we'll see later in the story when they try to get back to a classical liberalism, which takes us back to our starting point, right? Why was it so important for libertarians to express themselves as the real heirs of classical liberalism. It's sort of a conservative ideology, right? We need to get back to something. So, if you have those three fundamental schools of thought, not even schools of thought, but just underlying subconscious frameworks for how we understand societies, well, why did those come about at the time? 
Well, for socialists, these were people who were speaking on behalf of, or maybe even from, this newly urbanised working poor who were terribly exploited, but also, and crucially, all in one place. Which was suggestive of the ability to go, well, there's only one factory manager, and there's a thousand of us. Like, do the math, guys. Right? So... That's the origin and the genesis of that theory of change. Liberalism is a little bit more subtle. Many people see liberalism as the ideological expression of the middle class. That's a very simplistic view, but it's not totally erroneous either. And they want to say, well, society has changed a lot. We assume it can change again. So you conservatives are saying that, you know, we can't let these uneducated working class into the power structure because, that you know, they don't know. Any- okay, so let's educate them. Let's develop them. You see where these million ideas are coming back in? Let's make sure we get them access to education and later on healthcare. Let's continue to build societies so that there are restrictions on what employers can do so that there is a weekend, so that there is a maximum number of days. All policies mill supported a maximum number of days that people can work. In other words, let's take a step forward together into an open-ended theory of change. Let's continue to improve and develop society and improve and develop the people within it. That's the liberal response to these options. It's also the liberal response to empire. If the conservative says, and forgive me, this is just what people said at the time, these quote-unquote inferior races just can't govern themselves, what a mill would say, and mill, by the way, was an imperialist whose views would be hugely problematic today. There's no getting around that fact. But what he would say to that is, okay, so, but we know societies can develop. Our societies have developed, so let's just do what we can to grow and develop these societies, being concerned both with individual rights and social welfare, to the point where they are capable of self-government. Now, those answers, both on the sort of domestic policies of urbanisation and the foreign policies of empire, those are impermissible to the conservative, because the conservative wants to, needs to, has to say that there are rules that we cannot change. If Mill had a sort of benevolently racist attitude of, yes, of course, the Indians can't rule themselves now, but Mill would say, and he did, they are no different to us in principle, and this is a society that can develop towards self-rule, the conservative would have to say no. No, they are in principle different. In principle, there's something innate about other races that they're not capable of what we are. And again, isn't, don't we find this thought recurring again and again and again in conservatism, all the way down to Charles Murray? It's really, really, really important for them to insist that they're are these fundamental lines. And interestingly, it's more important for them to insist that there are these fundamental lines than what the lines are. The lines will change. The idea of the extra human order will go from God to the class structure to a natural aristocracy to the rule of a certain type of race to economics to back to race. It'll be all sorts of different things, but it'll always be there. The conservative, in response to the urbanisation will want to say, 
absolutely not, and this is one of the central debates of the late 1800s, these people cannot be given the voting franchise, and there's nothing they can do in terms of their improvement that would change my mind. So that's where these three fundamentally different visions of society and societalization come from, and of social progress come from. So where does libertarianism fit into all of that? Well, I would argue, if you take my characterization of those three great traditions, it's fundamentally conservative, right? Its theory of change is fundamentally a static one, especially as it evolves into its later forms, as, and if I do a part two to this story, we'll see, as it draws on ideas, sometimes in unison, sometimes in tension, sometimes in open antagonism towards the field of economics, it's going to postulate that there are economic rules to society that cannot be violated, at least not to our detriment. And it might be they cannot be violated morally, it might be that you just don't ever have the right to take people's property, even if doing so could save hundreds of lives, you just can't. Or it might be that you can't violate these rules pragmatically. And people still make this argument, oh, if you tax the rich, they'll just move abroad, or it'll destroy the economy, or something like that. And what I'd argue is, most of the people who make these arguments don't have economics degrees. They don't know all of the details about what exactly tax policy does. I do have an economics degree and I don't know all the details. It's really freaking complicated. But nonetheless, it is very, very, very important to them to insist that there are some lines you just can't cross. Property in this case. Well, again, to my mind, that's a fundamentally conservative worldview in that it seeks to conserve. And look, that might be your worldview, right? You might be a conservative. That's okay. You can put this worldview very nicely. You can phrase it as this Edmund Burke quote, which is coming back into vogue, that the purpose of society is a contract, but it's a contract not between the living and the living, but between the dead and the living, and the living and the yet-to-be. Very nice, right? Very beautifully phrased. But the idea that our role is to pass on what has gone before us to the future. You'll have to admit it's very nicely put. Again, I would argue a fundamentally and unrealistically static view of the world. But that might be your view of the world, right? Now, to my mind, libertarianism in terms of its early forms, there's going to be many splinters of this, by the way, once we get into the 20th century, but it's in its early forms, looks to me to be more conservative. Although self-identification should matter. On the other hand, these people claim to be liberals, and they are referencing prior proto-liberal thinkers like Locke, not completely illegitimately. So there is that argument as well. But again, as we saw in Spencer's initial quote, even though he saw himself as a liberal contesting liberalism, he was already floating the idea that maybe actually conservatives will be the ones to really care about the liberty that I care about. And that will be the story of part two. 
in part two, we'll look at Hayek and how Hayek took these libertarian concepts and in many ways shopped around between liberals and conservatives to find a home. So in the next part, we've looked at the interaction between liberalism and libertarianism, and I've argued that libertarianism in its origin has to be seen as a reaction against a particular species of progressive liberalism. In the next part, as we go through the turn of the century and into the interwar years, we'll look at the interaction between conservatives and libertarians. We'll also look at the interaction between liberals and socialists that will result in the modern welfare state. Lots of twists and turns, lots of interesting personalities. On the conservative side, I want to be looking at Churchill because he's great fun. I want to be looking at Hayek a lot for libertarians. On the liberal side, I want to do Hobson, Hobhouse, and Keynes. We haven't covered the role of economics yet. I think we need to get into that. And also look at a lot of socialist thought. And how all of this came together to build the institutions of the modern world. Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. As I mentioned at the beginning, if you have thoughts, questions, feedback, please do comment on social media or email me or whatever. I'd love to hear what people thought of that. As always, if you want to support the podcast, you can do so by sponsoring us on Patreon. I've been recommending, suggesting a donation of $2 an episode. So if these episodes are as valuable to you as a cup of coffee or some other similarly priced equivalent, considering sponsoring us on that basis. And a big thank you to everyone who does that. You can also support the show by sharing. So if you found this interesting, please do share it. And if you know someone who might find it interesting, please do forward it to them. Next week, I'm going to get back to interviews. And I'm going to be talking about Wittgenstein, language, and power with Dr. Rupert Reed, who has been on the show before. And we really get into it then. That's a great conversation. And then maybe a little bit later, maybe three, four weeks later, I'll bring out part two of this series. And yeah, we'll take it from there. So as always, thanks again for listening. And I hope you'll join us next week.